We're talking about property in this podcast, and I'd like to acknowledge that I'm recording on the traditional lands of the Wadawurrung and the Jajawurrung peoples. I pay my respect to their elders past, present and emerging. Smashed avocado is a delicious brunch, but it became famous when demographer Bernard Salt talked about millennials not being able to afford property. Perhaps they should just stop going out for brunch if they wanted to be able to buy a house. Like, it's just that easy. My name is Nicole Haddo and I'm a self-confessed smashed avo addict. Uh, But it hasn't been smashed avocado alone that's got me into trouble. I had problems with budgeting, I had credit card debt, I was juggling the cost of rent and I had university debt too. When I turned 30, I realised that I had to turn things around. I didn't have a lot of money in the bank and I certainly didn't own a property. But there was not a lot of information out there that would help me get started. So I started doing my own research and I did manage to find a way to get into the property market and I thought other people need this information too. So I decided to write a book about it. It's called Smashed Avocado, How I Crack the Property Market and You Can Too. I was really stunned by the feedback that I received from people who read the book. I had uh, people contact me on Instagram saying they were turning around their savings. I've even had people since tell me that they've managed to crack the property market. So here's the situation. Despite what the boomers say, it actually is more difficult for millennials and the next generations coming up to get into the housing market. In the 1980s, a house in Sydney cost four times the average national income. Today, it's more than 12 times that. Plus, you want to throw in a bit of hex debt and the cost of renting and these uncertain economic times, and it's a pretty difficult prospect for those of us trying to crack the market. In this podcast, I hope to give you the best information and some creative ideas to help you beat the odds and enter the housing market. I want you to believe it's possible. If I can do it and do it solo, then I really believe that you can do it too. I want to start by talking to mortgage broker Evelyn Clark. The reason I want to start by talking to a mortgage broker is sometimes you just need to know what you need to get your foot in the door. How much of a deposit do you need? Do you need 20%? Once you know how much you need to save, you've got a goal. So Evelyn, tell me a little bit about what the bank looks for when people are going to get their mortgage. Yeah, absolutely. I guess the first thing to note is it really depends on how much the client's looking to borrow in respect to the actual property value. So um, when you're looking at a client's position and we're calculating how much they need to borrow to achieve their purchase price, Obviously, deposit is a big factor in that. And the less deposit that you have available, I guess the stricter the rules are or the more that the bank will sort of look at that in detail. So the general rule of thumb is if you're borrowing more than 80% of the purchase price, so that's where that that 20% deposit figure that everyone sort of throws around comes from. So if you don't quite have that 20% deposit and you need to borrow more than 80% of the purchase price, then generally a bank's going to want to see that you've saved that amount of money um, genuinely over a minimum of a three-month period of time. So they want to see that you've at least had 5% of your savings that you've contributed over a three-month period of time in the bank account. You can also obtain family gifts or other sort of support that can be, you know, large lump sums in terms of boosting that deposit. But as a general rule of thumb, they want to know at least 5% of that you have genuinely saved. In terms of other things that they look for, so you can borrow as a first-home buyer in particular, you can borrow right up to generally 95% of the purchase price um, if you're buying that in your own right and you're not using other sort of government schemes or family guarantees or things like that, which we may go into a little bit of detail about. Um, But you can borrow generally up to around 95% of the purchase price. 
at that sort of purchase level and when you're borrowing over 80%, lender's mortgage insurance does come into consideration though and that adds to the loan amount that you essentially borrow from the lender. So overall, an absolute minimum of 5% is required, but ideally if you can get it more towards the 10 to 15% mark, um, your deposit will go a bit further. And let's talk about what lender's mortgage insurance is for people who might not understand. Yeah, sure. So lender's mortgage insurance is a insurance premium that the bank essentially passes on to the client in the event that you default or you can't afford to make your repayments. So it's an insurance premium that protects the lender, not yourself. Some people get confused with mortgage insurance because of the name. It's not something that you take out for your own personal insurances. It's actually because the banks deem anyone to be borrowing over 80% slightly more risky, they actually pass on that insurance premium. So for example, if I had um, a 10% deposit and I wanted to borrow 90% from the bank, then my base loan would be 90% and my mortgage insurance premium on top of that might be 2 or 3%. So overall, I might end up borrowing 93% of the purchase price, but I've still only contributed a deposit of 10%. Okay. And I know from my own experience that there are some pros and cons to using lenders' mortgage insurance. Uh, in my case, I wanted to uh, enter the market faster and that meant having a smaller deposit, but buying a property that hopefully would rise in value and over time, I guess, counteract that lender's mortgage insurance. Can you talk briefly about the benefits uh, of lender's mortgage insurance and also some of the things just to watch out for? Yeah, definitely. I think you've really hit the nail on the head there with that example. It's not something to be feared of if a client has a good strategy around their purchase and they know that they're buying something uh, and they might be paying mortgage insurance on the upfront, you know, point of that purchase. But the goal is behind that, that they're getting into the market faster. They may not be able to necessarily save as fast as you know, property prices are rising, for example, or in some cases, depending on where their threshold sits in terms of the loan amount that they need to borrow from the bank, their mortgage insurance premium might only be a few thousand dollars, but the difference of them saving that extra amount to get them to that full 20% deposit might have been might be tens of thousands of dollars. So the discrepancy there in terms of paying a small amount of mortgage insurance, getting into the market at the price that they want to, and then hopefully being able to, um, you know, take advantage of some of that, that growth in the property down the track means that that was actually really beneficial for them and they weren't having to wait and continue to save and potentially buy something at a much lower price point as well or not in the right areas or whatever it might be. So I think if, if it's carefully considered uh, and it's assisting you to take that step, then it is something that can be quite advantageous. Some of the cons, I guess, come from mortgage insurance when you perhaps, first of all, I guess, purchase a property that isn't going to realise that increase in value uh, and therefore down the track you might be still struggling to be paying down the debt in relation to the purchase price. So it might make it harder to, for example, refinance down the track or if you wanted to utilise some of that wealth in that property. If the property hasn't grown in value, then you can't really do that. So it can be a bit restrictive. Um, and also the higher the loan amount, the higher the mortgage insurance premium is because it's a percentage based and it's like a, it's a stepped uh, premium. So at 82%, your insurance premium is going to be a lot less than at 92%, for example. So just in terms of other things that people can do uh, to, I guess, speed up the process, there's lots of incentives out there at the moment for first home buyers. Can you talk about some of them for me? 
Absolutely. So in terms of, I guess the first one I'll talk about is the stamp duty concessions. Now I'm based in Victoria and majority of my clients are based in Victoria as well. So the stamp duty concessions for us are essentially up to a purchase price of 600,000 for new or established properties. You are fully exempt from paying stamp duty as a first home buyer. Um, so when we talk about those examples earlier, where we mention a 10 or a 20% deposit, you don't need to then factor in additional costs for stamp duty on top of that. Whereas um, if you're then purchasing between 600 and $750,000, the stamp duty is on a sliding scale. So the closer you get to 750,000, the closer you get to paying full stamp duty, which means that then needs to be factored in on top of your standard deposit as additional contribute, contributions for yourself towards that purchase price. Now, anything over 750,000, would then incur full stamp duty. And I'll just sort of preface as well, this is obviously for a first home that you're owner occupying. So if you're buying an investment property as a first home and continuing to rent, for example, which is actually quite common, particularly um, as prices might be potentially outside a client's um, goal where they want to be residing, you do then need to pay full stamp duty on investment purchases. There aren't any concessions if you're not going to be living in that property. So that's the stamps side of it, and that's for new or established. There's some other con uh, other incentives, I guess, um, for a lot for new builds, which at the moment, if you purchase in Victoria, for example, you receive a $10,000 first homeowner's grant. Now that grant is, again, payable on brand new properties for first home buyers, so you do need to be occupying the property, and it has to be um, up to again that $750,000 price point. The other concession which is a government incentive that was brought out more recently uh, and probably um, uh, at the start of 2020 I think it was now um, is the first home loan deposit scheme which essentially allows a person to borrow with only a 5% deposit and the bank uh, and the government rather will provide a guarantee of up to 15% of the purchase price so that 5% that you've already saved plus the government guarantee of 15% gets your loan to value ratio from the lender perspective down to 80% and therefore no lender's mortgage insurance is applicable. But it's important to note because it's a guarantee, it's not a cash contribution from the government, you're still borrowing that 95% loan amount. So you need to be able to service that 95% loan amount. But the government is sort of backing the security between the 80 to 95% that you need to, to cover that gap and therefore no mortgage insurance is payable. Again, that is only for um, owner occupiers. Um, there's only ten. There were only ten thousand places, I should say, released for established properties and for new builds. So there's two separate guarantees, uh, but the places do run out quite quickly. So they have been releasing places pretty much at the start of the financial years and the calendar years. Um, but it's going to be sort of up to the government as to when they pull that out or when they continue that. Um, it's one of those things that unfortunately we can't rely on every single calendar year or financial year. Um, but at the moment, it's really working for a lot of clients that have don't quite have that full deposit uh, and can save some mortgage insurance that way. Something you just touched on there was the concept of servicing. Now, when I was looking to purchase my property, something that I did um, was sit down and work out what I could afford mortgage-wise, and then I worked out what deposit was required to be able to essentially get that mortgage. Can you talk to me a little bit about how you help your clients to establish how much they should borrow in terms of being able to service that mortgage? Yeah, absolutely. So I generally look at a few different key indicators, I guess, when we're calculating servicing from a client perspective. 
The first thing that we look at is how a bank would essentially assess your borrowing capacity. So the bank's going to be looking at your income, your expenses, and any ongoing liabilities. Typically, they're the three key requirements in calculating your serviceability. So serviceability is essentially um, your incomings versus your outgoings. Uh, and when a bank looks at that, they will take your um they will add a buffer to your proposed loan repayments. So at the moment, interest rates are extremely low. Let's say that you are eligible for an interest rate of 2%. The bank will usually add a buffer of 2.5% to your interest rate to calculate what your serviceability is. So you might look at your proposed repayments and go, oh, I can I can cover those easily. But a bank is going to be adding 2.5%. So they're actually assessing you on more like 5 to 6% for their repayments so that they know that if anything changes, in your circumstances or if you have some higher expense items or something like that, that you've got a bit of a buffer there. But that's, as I say, from a bank perspective in terms of how they calculate serviceability, it's also really important that the client understands where their budget sits and that they're comfortable meeting those repayments. So one of the things that I like to ask my clients is, have you considered what your monthly budget is for repayments and have you added in a buffer there? Um, for example, if you were to you know, have a temporary reduction in income or if you did need to sort of fork out um, some additional savings or something for um, emergencies have you considered um, having that that buffer in place and what is your what is your budget for a monthly or a weekly uh, loan repayment for example so that's one side of things that that budget will essentially allow us to look at well then what does that equate to in terms of overall um, lending amount in terms of the overall loan limit and then when we look at your deposit adding to that what does then what does that then help you to achieve purchase price wise? So there's a few ways you can do it. Um, some clients will have quite a low budget in relation to their serviceability. They might be able to service a loan of say eight or $900,000, but they've determined that they don't want to be spending that much money on a monthly basis. They actually are more comfortable with the loan repayments on say a $500,000 purchase uh, loan amount. Um, and so we work backwards from that. We look at what's your maximum from a lender perspective, what's your maximum from a comfort level, and where, where should we be putting that in terms of the overall purchase price? Fantastic. I think that's a really good point to make. Just because you can borrow a certain amount of money uh, doesn't necessarily mean that you want to be going to that max. You still want to think about your lifestyle and and what what's involved in actually enjoying your life. Yeah, I think also on that, not just in terms of we're not only looking at from a lifestyle lifestyles perspective how much you're sort of saving in, in extra cash flow, but also looking at things like do you have a goal to buy another property in a few years? And if so, you don't necessarily want to be maxing out on your first purchase because you do need some buffer in terms of cash flow and serviceability for the next purchase as well. So there's a few reasons why you might look to reduce that initial purchase. Now, tell me a little bit about what you do for your clients as a mortgage broker. The first time I was looking, I was looking at going direct to the bank. So can you tell me a little bit about the benefits of choosing a mortgage broker as opposed to speaking to your bank directly? One of the, um, one of the I guess, analogies that I like to use for clients is if you've ever used a flight comparison website, like a Webjet or something like that, mortgage brokers act very similarly to that, where they are assessing and reviewing all of your potential lender options that we've got access to, um, and then recommending the best ones for your circumstances. So it's sort of like using a comparison site, I guess, in a way, but you're getting that personalized touch of it, where we're also assessing not only the lender options and the 
interest rates, but how the lender looks at you as a borrower, whether you have a particular aspect, I guess, in terms of your personal circumstances that might be needed to take into consideration. For example, self-employed clients is is a very common one. Every lender assesses self-employed incomes quite differently. And therefore, you might have a really strong borrowing capacity with one lender because of your self-employed income versus it might be quite low with another, just depending on how your business has performed over the last few years. So what a what a broker can actually do is compare all of those lender options for you um, in quite a, a non-biased way um, by assessing what do you need out of a loan product and what does your personal circumstance look, look like? And then going to our scope of lenders and going, okay, these are the products that we think are going to be the best suitable. Um, These are the interest rate options and how and essentially which lenders we would recommend to you. I do find that majority of clients, particularly the first home buyers that have come, uh, potentially they've spoken to a bank and now they've come to a broker. They all say, wow, the bank's never told me that. We've just learned so much more than we ever did sitting down with the bank by speaking with you because we do really handhold them throughout that whole experience. So it's not just the whole idea that if you go to a bank, you're sort of pigeonholed into their product and their rates. It's not only that, so you get far more choice, but it's also hopefully you're getting a far better experience because the broker's really taking you through from end to end. I know that for a little while, um, sometimes brokers had a little bit of a, a bad name, but um, I certainly, having having experienced the bank directly and brokers, I think um, there's, there's absolutely a lot of benefits there. Um, tell me a little bit about the loan itself. Are all loans the same or are they structured differently depending on which lender you go with? Yeah, good question. They can definitely be structured differently. And again, it really comes back to what the client needs in terms of their their goals. Um, I'm a big believer in aligning the products that we select for a client to their ongoing goals. So it's not just about you purchasing this property now and getting the lowest interest rate. It's about setting that product up for your next, you know, two, three, four, five years, for example. So we look at things like, you know, fixed versus variable interest rates. That's probably the most obvious in terms of how loans can be structured. And they come, they both come with their pros and cons. But then if you look even at just a variable rate home loan, for example, you've also got added product features like redraw account, uh, redraw facilities, offset accounts, um, and they basically help you to manage your loan repayments and your loan facility in a different, in a very different way. So if you're someone that just wants to pay down the loan as fast as possible, then a particular product might be more beneficial for you. Whereas if you're someone that wants certainty of repayments and you really want to have some sort of budgeting aspect to your home loan, then another product might be more beneficial. Um, if you're looking at purchasing a product, uh, purchasing a property, sorry, and then turning that into an investment property in the future, uh, and then building up a deposit for that next purchase, then we might be recommending a different structure as well. So it depends on what the client's goals are as to which product and structure we then recommend. And then you've also got the ability to, depending on the lender, you can have multiple loan facilities um, or multiple you know, transaction accounts, for example, um, depending on how you want to manage your money from there as well. So it's really dependent on how the client wants to set their products up based on what their goals are. Every lender has similar products, but generally structured in a little bit of a different way. Excellent. Fantastic. Now let's talk about at what point you might be engaged to help a buyer enter the market. Um, I know that there's a couple of phases. There's obviously saving that deposit and getting to the point where you think you might have enough to purchase a property. At what point should someone come to you 
uh, if if they're looking, if they've started shopping, essentially they've started they've started going out, they've started looking at houses. I know that there's a process called pre-approval. Uh, so, at what point should someone be looking to see what the bank might be able to give them? It it can be a bit of a catch twenty two sometimes. Do you start looking at properties, or do you have to work out how much you can borrow first? Because they sort of go hand in hand. Um, we often get clients that will that we'll speak to well before they're ready to buy just so that they can start to understand approximately what their income would allow them to borrow from a a serviceability perspective. And then from there, they might have a bit better understanding of what budget and price point they're looking at for a purchase. That gives them a bit of a savings goal as well, and then they can be working on that in the meantime. Once they are then ready to go and they know that they're actually actively looking in the market for a purchase, I always say to clients, come and speak to a broker, ideally at least one, if not two months before you've decided that you want to buy and you're actually looking and going to inspections and things. Reason being is that I don't think the finance process should be rushed. And if a client is already looking at properties and they don't really understand where their borrowing capacity sits and they might be sort of pushing themselves to their maximum borrowing capacity, then they're going to be uh, restricted and potentially pigeonholed in terms of a product if all of a sudden they found a property that's going to auction and they haven't got pre-approval yet because then it's going to be dictated by okay well who can just get it done the fastest um, and what product are we going to pick sometimes without really taking into consideration what they're what they're what is going to be most beneficial for them so ideally one to two months before you're actually looking to buy What happens from there is the broker's going to ask you for some documentation. They're pretty much going to ask you for everything that a lender needs to assess your application. At this stage, you haven't yet purchased a property. So the broker's going to do an assessment. They're going to find out what your borrowing capacity is. They're then going to recommend you some loan options, have a discussion with with you around which ones of, of those suit you best, and then they'll help you to pick your preferred product. The broker will then submit that application to the bank for a particular loan amount and purchase price, subject to you having purchased that property at that stage. So ideally, this is the pre-approval process. And ideally, what that means is the bank will fully assess your position. They will indicatively say, yes, you're eligible to borrow this amount of money. As long as your purchase property meets our standard criteria, um, then we're happy to issue you a formal finance approval. Uh, So the pre-approval process should be a fully assessed application with everything but the contract of sale. So that means that now that you're pre-approved, that pre-approval will last 90 days. You can then go house hunting within that 90-day period uh, and it means that you've got confidence that you know what what your budget is from a loan amount perspective and a purchase price perspective. And then you can sign a contract of sale, whether it be at auction or subject to finance or private sale, for example, Um, sign a contract of sale. That then goes back to the bank. They complete a valuation on the property to confirm that that property price is in line with the contract price that you essentially signed for, and then you'll receive a formal finance approval after that. So that's generally the process. So give yourself enough time that you can have a good assessment completed by the broker before you're ready to lodge for pre-approval so that you know that you're getting the best product and then you're going to have that pre-approval for a 90-day period anyway. I think that's really good advice because I I think people think they can just get their pre-approval done in a couple of days and and quite often now it, it can take weeks. So yeah. you don't you don't want to fall in love with a house only to find out that your finance isn't going to be approved in time. Tell me a little bit about uh, how you select the lenders. Now, I know historically uh, that sometimes brokers would perhaps be a little bit biased towards one bank uh, if that was going to be 
beneficial for them. How can people be sure that, that you're doing the right thing for them? Yeah, absolutely. There was definitely, I think off the back of the Royal Commission, a few questions came out in regards to how brokers were selecting products. So legally, we have a best interest duty that we have to act by. We are required to provide uh, recommendations to the client that are in their best interest, which essentially means that um, their best best interest may be rate driven, it may be product driven, it may be borrowing capacity driven. There are a number of factors that go into consideration as to what products we essentially provide to the bank. And we're audited on an ongoing basis. If we're not acting in the client's best interest, then we're essentially breaching our legal rights as a broker. So I think that's the first thing that customers should be really comfortable that if they are speaking to a broker, they know that they have to do that. Um, the other thing too is, uh, I guess, from my perspective, I couldn't even tell you the difference between what a bank pays me because I've never really considered that um, in any sort of scope as to why I would recommend a product to a client. So it's all disclosed to the client up front as well, our commission structure, um, and it doesn't add to the cost of the client's loan. So we're essentially, unless a broker is charging a fee for their service up front, which we don't do, some brokers do, um, there's no actual out-of-pocket out expense to a client for a broker. So that's, I guess, one, one way to sort of look at it, and hopefully that gives clients some comfort. In terms of how we select products and we recommend to the clients, the number one thing I think you'll find most brokers will consider is the credit policy of the lender, which I know sounds a little bit boring, but really when a broker, when a client is coming to you and sitting down and starting to tell you their story, so who they are, what income they receive, um, how much they want to borrow, all of that sort of thing, what type of property they're purchasing. When they start to talk about their scenario and who they are as a client, already in our minds, we're going, okay, that would suit that lender, probably that lender. No, that doesn't quite work with their policy. So already we're starting to tick over in our minds, which lender is this going to sit with in terms of a policy perspective? And then from there, once we've got a bit of a a short list of lenders that we know that it meets policy um, and that the client is going to have no troubles getting approved with, we'll then look at the next consideration, which might be interest rate, it might be fees, it might be loan product, that type of thing. So at the end of the day, we're not going to recommend products that are way outside the scope in terms of interest rate, but we will really narrow it down. And I often will present clients with, say, four or five products, um, you know, in order of rate, but that wasn't the first consideration. It might have been product um, policy or something first that then brought me into, okay, now let's consider interest rate. Evelyn, that's fantastic. I guess the one thing that I'd, I'd love to wrap up with is the market just keeps going. It's kind of <laughs> it's kind of nuts. Um, how can people stay motivated in terms of that saving and and working out um, you know what their first investment might be? It's really hard, I guess, because um, if you you're looking at realestate.com and you're seeing that prices are going far more than what they potentially were quoted for, and you're just chipping away at your savings. Um, it's it's definitely that compound effect of, you know, you're, you're doing those little things every single day and you may not be seeing the results straight away, but you know that that's all adding up and working towards a, a larger goal. So I, I definitely can, um, can, you know, relate to the fact that it is quite um, 
it's quite tricky at the start. Um, but the more that you get into that habit, I think it's all about forming habits. The more that you get into that habit of saving and that you have a goal that you're committed to working towards, you will start to see the accumulation of those small incremental habits that you are putting forward. Um, so whilst it can be, you know, a little bit um, disheartening in some respects sometimes, keep clients and customers just have to keep, you know, taking that next step closer. Um, Whatever works for them, I guess, in terms of how they're motivated, if you need to put up pictures of houses to, you know, get yourself motivated to concentrate on that or give yourself a reward that's not a monetary reward, but give yourself a reward when you do hit those small savings goals or whatever it might be, just like you would with any other goal that you're working towards in life, whatever motivates you, I guess, utilize that in your savings uh, savings goal as well. Have an accountability partner, whatever it takes. (laughs) Um, But I guess the hardest thing is getting that initial deposit and getting the foot in the door. Once you've got your foot in the door, it is so much easier to pay that loan off, to work towards the next one, to keep pushing forward Um, so you've just got to try and get that first step which is getting the deposit and getting that first purchase completed. Evelyn had a lot of great advice to share. I want to take a moment and think about my key takeaways. I like to call these my avos of wisdom. So first up I think it's important to understand that you need to make sure what the first home buyer benefits are in your state and whether they work for your circumstances and the property that you would ideally like to buy. We always have it drilled in that you need 20%, but in many cases, you don't necessarily. You might be able to get into the market with less. If you don't have 20%, you'll need what's called lender's mortgage insurance. That's added to the life of the loan and depends on the percentage of deposit you've got and the cost of the property. When you're ready to go shopping, pre-approval on being able to buy a property can take a little while to get, and it also doesn't last forever usually about 90 days, so you'll need to factor this into your timing. I know when you're starting off, it can feel like saving is going to take a really long time, but when you rock up to the bank and you're trying to get a loan, they want to see a strong savings history, so it's a good idea to start now. From my early memories, it was always you you would enjoy splurging and you would enjoy, you know, I remember in the early days, you're getting a credit card and um, immediately spending and, and really loading it up I can remember some of your purchases. I remember there was a beanie. You had a, a pink, fluffy beanie. I'm pretty sure it was really, really expensive. Um, and so that really stands out. There was also shoes. I remember shoes. There was a, a lot of, I know you I know you worked for a retailer for shoes, but I, I know that you, even when they were at a discounted price, it was just extreme about how much, like, it was just, yeah, it, 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 incredible. That was my brother Joel outing me on my terrible spending habits. Uh, we lived together in our family home while I was saving. And I know I was lucky to do that, but I was on a time limit. My parents had given me a year. So I took on side hustle work and I did an epic power save. What I really saw in yourself, I guess, was that dedication to um, to not spending money, which was a real shift in yourself because I, I, I know throughout my uh most of my life, you'd always been quite liberal in terms of how you how you spent your money and how you enjoyed yourself. Um, and so it was a massive shift to seeing yourself. So obviously you went from, you know, going out all the time to um, frequently being at home, um, which was obviously really hard when there was so many of us at home. Um, but that's, that's what I really saw in yourself and, 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 and that commitment. 
um, and that sacrifice to make sure that you could actually, I guess, in a sense, catch back up. I'm not going to lie to you, it wasn't a very exciting time. It definitely wasn't Instagram worthy. I cut out everything that wasn't essential and that included things like going to the hairdresser. I wasn't going out with my mates unless it was absolutely within the budget. I even cut out takeaway coffee. So now that I've managed to put better savings practices in place, I want to share my savings avos of wisdom. First up, it's never too late to turn things around. If you're not great with money, and I know I certainly wasn't, get someone to help you set up a budget and work out how much you can put away. You don't need to give up your social life completely, but finding ways to keep it humble is the key. You want to seek out mates who've got shared savings goals and help to keep you on track. If it's possible, it can also be a good idea to find cheaper rent while you save. And finally, look for ways that you can cut back. I cut back on so many things that I would spend money on without even thinking about it. But it was worth it. Before too long, I saw the figures in my bank account balance rising and it motivated me to keep going. So next time, I want to keep you motivated as you start and continue your savings journey. I'm going to introduce you to some interesting people who found clever ways to get ahead. The information in this podcast is provided for entertainment and educational purposes only. It is general in nature and does not apply specifically to your circumstances. If you're considering purchasing property, it's always best to speak to a licensed financial professional before making any decisions related to your goals.